0: All right, well, let's open up our Bibles today to Deuteronomy chapter 23. And we're in a section in Deuteronomy right now that um, it is labeled miscellaneous laws. And, and to be honest with you, it can be kind of tough to go through. Um, but it's cool. Then there's a, a verse that will just pop out here and there that is just so relevant. And that's why it's just so So awesome just to go through the Bible, uh, just to teach through the Bible, and uh, you get those little hidden nuggets uh, as you're going through. But remember, you guys, Deuteronomy is Moses' final words. He's just about to pass away after 120 years of life. Uh, The first 40 years, he found out that he, he, well, he thought anyways that he was something, and the next 40 years, God showed him that he was nothing, and God brought him to that place where he could then be usable. Uh, humble God then used him for forty years as one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, and through him, God gave to the uh, Jews their law, He gave them their moral law, their ceremonial law, their civil law, and so we 're right in the middle of all these things and so, as I shared last week, you know some of the things um, you know we we have to you read with discernment they don 't necessarily explicitly apply to us, but we can pull some principles I think uh, as we go through and implicitly make application. Uh, Look what we read here first in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1. It says, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, your Lord, your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord, your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord, your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace, nor their prosperity all your days forever. And you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now here we read of those uh, not allowed entrance into the assembly of the Lord. Uh, We read of those who were allowed entrance into the assembly of the Lord. Uh, We read, first of all, of those individuals. Moses mentions the emasculated or mutilated, oftentimes connected to paganism. He mentions the individuals born illegitimately. uh, The Ammonite or Moabite, if you think about it, were themselves born illegitimately, for they were offspring of an incestuous relationship. Lot sleeping with his daughters in Genesis chapter 19. Therefore, according to the letter of the law, the Ammonite and Moabite were not allowed entrance into the assembly of the Lord since their beginning sprang from that. Uh, We read, not only was that the reason, but look again there in verse four, it says, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And so they uh, did not give the children of Israel even the basics of life. And then to make matters worse, we read on right here. That they hired Balaam the prophet for profit to curse the children of Israel. Something you read about over in Numbers 22 and 23. And, you know, they were so bad, we read in verse 6, that God said, You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Now, when looking at this, it's kind of interesting. But we need to always balance things with Scripture. Um, One of the things that we know when we read the Bible is that the Lord could still save the Ammonite or the Moabite, the mutilated or the emasculated. But as far as the visible entrance into the assembly of the Lord, God said, well, what they had done, uh, according to the letter of the law, had crossed certain lines. You know, And that brings up another question. What is the assembly of the Lord? What was the assembly of the Lord in the Old Testament? You know, uh, some people believe, well, what that was, was entrance into the, uh, I guess you could say, the tabernacle confines. Or others say it was just the large assembly of the congregation they would meet every once in a while. Others believe maybe it's in reference to leadership. Bottom line is we're not 100% sure about certain things. But we have some principles to glean. You know, I don't know about you, man, but when I read this right here, I'm so glad that I am not under the Old Covenant. How about you, man? <laughs> I really am, you know, because we're under the New Covenant. Don't forget, Jesus said in Matthew 26:28, for this is my blood of the New Covenant. It's the blood of the New Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant anymore, he said, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You know, if we were still under the Old Covenant, I couldn't be in the assembly. Why? Because I was born out of wedlock. My mom and dad weren't married when I was born. And so I would definitely not be allowed into leadership. You know, and how many times if you think about it, have you failed to give your brother bread to eat or water to drink, to give them the needs that they had in their life? You know, I'm so glad in reading this right here that certain things have changed. But I'm also glad that certain things have not changed. You know, one thing that has not changed. Look at verse 5 again, you guys. Uh, It says, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. And that's how we read the Old Testament, you know. Um, We have to make a a line between the things that were the civil law, the ceremonial law, and things that are the moral law. Things that are there in the Old Testament that aren't repeated in the New Testament. We have to have that type of discernment. And, you know, in looking at this right here, we see one thing that hasn't changed. And that is that God still turns the cursings into blessings. That God still loves the people. And I just thought when I read that, I'm so blessed. You know, we read the story right here. We know that Balaam was open to cursing the children of Israel, but God was not. And what we find is that God's kids cannot be cursed. We cannot be cursed anyways by them, by principalities or powers or this person or that person. You know, whenever things happen in our life, uh, you may intend it for evil, but God in my life will use it for good. And when we look at this, it's just a beautiful thing, you know. How many times in the Bible have we seen examples of God turning the curses of man into blessings? You know, we saw this happen when Joseph's brothers, they sold him as a slave to be carried off to Egypt. Years later, though, when Joseph was second in command, his brothers were terrified, right? But he told them, don't worry about it. He said that he knew that they intended evil against him, but God meant it for good. And see, God took the curse and turned it into a blessing, and God so often does that in our life. You know, some people worry about someone putting a hex or a curse on them. But the scriptures say that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. This is a heritage of the servants of the Lord, Isaiah fifty-four seventeen. And so Pastor Chuck said, It is to know that when God's blessing is upon our lives, though people may hate us or curse us, those curses will always be turned into blessings. You see, and it's cool for us to know that because I would venture to say that there are some people here you're going through hard times. You know, things happen. We need to know that God can take that stumbling stone and make it a stepping stone. He takes the calamities that knock us down and he uses those calamities to build us up. And be encouraged by that, that no matter what comes your way, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Why? Because God's kids can't be cursed. See? I mean, I mean the enemy can't do it. That person can't do it. You know, the only one I think that can kind of make things a little interesting is us, right? I know sometimes that gets scary, but at the same time, understand the amazing, amazing, amazing grace of God. That as we stand in His righteousness and as we trust in Jesus, That as we, you know, get up and start over again, that God will meet us there. God is good, you guys. He really is. You know, right now I'm reading an autobiography by the wife of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Her name is Mary Beth. And I know a lot of you probably know the story after the little girl died, having been run over accidentally by their son. Think about that, how tough that must be, not only to lose your daughter, but to have your son you know, go through that. Um, it was an extremely uh, deep blow to their family. But in reading the book, I see that she's choosing to see the beauty from the ashes, the blessing from what might appear to be a cursing. And you know, one quote that she shares that really jumped out at me, it said this, it said, Love of God is pure, When joy and suffering inspire an equal amount of gratitude. And I read that and I said, wow, love of God is pure when joy and suffering bring an equal amount of gratitude. Man, I said, wow, Lord, that's a long way from the love that I have. Cause so many times, you know, we get all excited and we get, you know, feeling good and we're in a good mood and we're happy when everything's going great. But when things aren't really going great, you know, we, you know, get all bummed out and, and wigged out and, you know, stressed out. And, you know, but when it comes to being God's kids, He says that there should be an equal amount of gratitude. Because God will take that hard time and usually it takes a hard time to really bring us to where we need to be. Bottom line is, a lot of us here aren't really surrendered. I mean, if you're honest, and I know we play church, and I know we don't want anybody to know, but the bottom line is, a lot of us here are not really sold out for the kingdom of God. We're kind of doing it according to our own guidelines. And so God's going to take you through the fire. But when you're there, open up. Be real. Be real. I mean, you don't want to die being a fake, do you? You fooled everybody but God, right? I mean, you want to live real. Uh, It's going to take the hard times, though. But remember, according to the scriptures, that God will take the thorn in the flesh and make you what he wants you to be, trusting in him. And that's okay. Okay. You know, even though we look at this right here and we see the curse that Balaam intended and, you know, things like that, it says right there, God turned the curse. It says God turned the curse. He turned the curse into a blessing for you. And we see why. It says because the Lord your God loves you. That's why. Even though we're not worthy, and, you know, if I was you, I would just kind of settle that right now, okay? We're not worthy. Okay, Manny, but I will be next week. I promise I'm going to do this and that. And you watch, man. I'm going to dot all my eyes and cross all my T's. And you watch what kind of a guy I'm going to be next year. Yeah, praise God. You know, you got to grow. you got to change. But you're never going to arrive. You will always fail. You will always fail until we go to heaven. You see, God loves you because of who he is. Not because of who you are. You know, you're in Christ and you're his kid. And that's why he loves us. And that's why he's going to take all those things that the enemy intends for evil that a lot of you are going through right now. And it's just crazy. God's going to take that and he's going to turn it into a blessing for your life. And so you're encouraged by that. It's almost like you want it. Okay, then, Lord, you know what? Tell you what, man. Um, Because that's how fruitful it is. You see, in looking at this right here, we see that in the Old Testament, some were excluded from the assembly and some were included. Uh, We read about them in verse 7, the Edomite, he's your brother. Uh, And he says, the Egyptian, don't abhor him. Why? Because you were an alien in his land. You see, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, children of Isaac and Rebekah. And they were to be included because of their relation. And the Egyptians were allowed into the assembly because of their connection? Bottom line is, God looked back, God looked forward. He sees who they were. He sees who they will be. He sees what they did and what they'll do. And then he calls the shots. And he says, you can come in and you can't. And so I was reading this right here and I'm like, okay, Lord, well, how does it apply to us? And there's a lot of things I know. But the bottom line is this, a couple of things. Number one, who's going to heaven? Who's allowed into heaven? Only those who accept Christ, right? And so, how many of you here are like, cool, I'm going? Okay, let me ask you a question though. You taking anybody with you? Do you ever think about who's allowed into the assembly and what difference are you making? That's one thing. Another thing is this. Matthew 18 talks about how sometimes in church you have to deal with things if people don't want to change. If they're in church and they just don't want to change, and I hope that's no one here, but if they just don't want to change and you tell them and then someone else tells them and the church even deals with it, then they're supposed to be excluded from the assembly. And so prayerfully, man, that we have that in our heart, that this is real. This is God, this is his church, and this is his kingdom. You know, in one sense, this chapter deals with the Egyptians, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. But it primarily deals with the Israelites. And God said to his people, I want you to be clean. Look or read next in verse 9. It says, and when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night... Then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Now, I don't know if you guys caught that as I'm reading through, but it's kind of interesting, huh? You know, for the Israelites, and I guess that the main thing is, is that he just wanted them to be clean. And, you know, being clean and unclean for them was external as well as internal. For them, it sometimes had to do even with things like sanitation as well as sanctification. Remember, you guys, and we read that part right there, they didn't have toilets back then, right? And so God said, okay, take care of business, have a place to go, a shovel nearby, and bury your waste, right? And, you know, there we have some precepts for them, and I think, though, for us, some principles, Um Notice again what we read there in verse 9. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. Where where are they going? They're going out to war. How often do you go out to war? Every day, huh? When you wake up in the morning, (laughs) you go out to war. And so when the armies go out to war, keep yourself, he says, from every wicked thing. Don't forget, this camp is consecrated, God says. And so you ask, well, why is it consecrated? Or read there again in verse 14. Why? Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. You know, and for us, you know, you're the temple of God. God lives in you. And And God says, since I'm in you, be holy. For I am holy. You know, we read that. God says, I want you to walk a certain way. I want you to know where you're at. You know, you might say, well, Manny, that's the Old Testament. Again, 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, In what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, God is with us. And when you read the Bible, it's kind of interesting. God's with us This is a temple of God personally. But did you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that this is a temple of God congregationally? God is here. God's kind of like walking through the aisles. And he wants us to be holy. Think about it. How does Jesus present himself in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? Do you guys remember? He said, I'm the one who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, right? I mean, he walks in the midst of the church. And so we need to do our part in keeping the camp, the congregation clean. Read next there in verse 15. It says, you shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates. Where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. Now, God's just giving them the laws of the land. And this right here would, of course, be a refuge slave from a foreign land. God says, don't send him back. Don't oppress him. We read next in verse 17. It says, there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Pastor Chuck said most pagan religions, because of the marvelous capacity of reproduction, worship the human reproductive capacity and therefore incorporated sexual perversion into their religious rituals. And many of their temples were supported by prostitutes. Crazy, huh? Think about that. The children of Israel were commanded to be different. They were forbidden from corrupting the miracle of human reproduction, and were keep to keep themselves pure. Now here in verse 17 mentions the ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel. But notice again there in verse 17, it also mentions the perverted ones of the sons of Israel, which is literally an individual who practiced sodomy. It's literally a man who is a male prostitute and engaged in homosexuality. And so it's crazy when you think about it, but back then things got so bad that they would, you know, um, bring some and sometimes all the money they made in their prostitution efforts and they would give it to their gods. And God said to the children of Israel, You shall not do so. As a matter of fact, I would even kind of venture maybe a little farther and say, When you give to the Lord, you know, do your best to make sure that that money's pure. You know, you give to the Lord. One of the things I want to encourage you to do is give um, hilariously. You know, if that, you know, basket's passing by and you don't really want to give, don't give. You know, if you want to give out of obedience, that's where it's at. But you know what? You want that that to be pure. Um, If you're, you know, earning money, you know, dishonestly, don't give that to God. That's tainted. You want to give to the Lord hilariously, obediently, uh, honestly. Things that, you know, God has used in your life as you're earning that for Him. And you just really want to make sure that all these things are clean. We read here in verse 19, it says, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. You know, oftentimes, and I've seen it in church history, a wealthy man will lend maybe to the church or a Christian interest-free. The reason being is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom work that's involved. You know, and we kind of see an element of that here in verse 19 and 20. That's why it was different with foreigners. We also see the heart of compassion, though, huh? How God says, don't charge them interest. You know, how many of you here are in credit card debt? No, I'm just joking. I shouldn't ask you that. No. man. You know, when you get your credit card bill and you're, man, it, it, I think by law, I think they have to tell you now that if you pay the minimum payment how long it'll take you to pay it off. I'm not sure. I know we're getting there. And so usually, you know, they say, if you pay the minimum payment, it'll take you 30 years to pay it off, you know, because they're charging you crazy interest, right? And so here's your brother and he's in need. And can you imagine, you know, writing up a document? Okay, 10%, 15% interest. God says, no, don't do that. Um, Don't charge them interest. It's been tough for them as it is financially. It's going to be hard for them to dig themselves out of the hole. That they'll create, you know, and and so God says, listen, man, you guys have to have a compassionate heart. You know, we see the responsibility, I think, in the Bible of wealth. If you've been blessed in that way and some of you because of your good stewardship, use it wisely. Bless others. Um, We read next in verse 21, it says, and when you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God, which you have promised with your mouth. God says, if you made a vow, if you said you were going to do whatever it is, you know, and it's kind of a formal vow to the Lord, God said, I will keep you accountable to that. You know, if you were up here and you, you know, made a vow, maybe it was your marriage vow. um, You know, you got to make sure that you know that God will hold you to those words that you repeated from the minister's mouth, the pastor's mouth. Better not to vow. You got to make sure you follow through. Sometimes we get hasty or wasty in our words and we don't realize the value of a vow that's made to God. It's actually sacred. It's actually a solemn oath. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5, it says the same thing pretty much. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. Again, many of us here have made uh, marriage vows. And uh, I would venture to say that some of us here, when we got married, we said that we would love our wives as Christ loves the church. Husbands, you know, uh, if you got married in the church, you probably said that. How are you doing? Some of you wives here, you made a vow before God and you said that you would submit to your husband as unto the Lord. You you told God you would do that. Uh, Are you doing that? You know, some of us here, we did those vows, you know, for better, for worse, richer, poorer, sickness, and in health, till death do us part. And those were vows you made to God. And, and one day, uh, we'll stand before Him and give an account. You know, maybe you're here today and you made a vow to God, you know, to give in a certain way or to live a certain way. And you thought it was no big deal. It is a big deal. When you pray to God and you tell him you're going to do something, it is a big deal. You're talking to God. I remember even before I was saved, I used to say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do that, right? Maybe some of you here have said that. Oh, God, if you get me out, I'll serve you wholeheartedly, unreservedly. And then he got you out of that jam. He did his part. Do you do yours? Be careful, because God's kind of like our kids. He'll hold us to it. My son, he's all, Dad, you said we were going to play wee baseball tonight. So I said, okay. Verse 24, it says, When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. I love the way... You know, when I was growing up, neighbors were neighbors. It was kind of cool. You know, you'd go next door, and you know, no problem. You go get their oranges off the tree or whatever. Now they shoot you. You know, it's different now. But it's kind of cool. You know, the Lord says you can go over to your neighbor's house and you can grab some grapes. And oh man, these—have you ever tried the black seedless grapes? Those are the best, man. Um, uh, there's so many good grapes now. But God says you can't. You know, you can't take a bushel basket, you know, and fill it up. You know, you can go and you can grab some grain, but you can't take a sickle, you know, to your neighbor's house. And I, I like that. I like the way, we're going to see even later at the end of chapter 24, the way that there was this um, this element of, uh, of taking care of each other, man. The way that there was this element of love towards one another that is just so beautiful. You know, we don't see it a lot nowadays, um, especially where I live. I know things are different in different cities and neighborhoods and things like that. Um, but, you know, this at heart of being a neighbor it is kind of missing. We read next in chapter 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance." You know, in reading this section right here, it appears to me that the main point is found in verse 4, that you just can't, you know, play games in marriage. That women are not simply a piece of property. You know, a man divorces his wife. Uh, here we see something that required a certificate, which would be different. Some cultures, would, ju- you would just have to speak it. You're divorced. At least here we see there was a certificate involved. Um, but she moves on in life, marries another man, and her second husband maybe does the same to her, or he dies. And so the first husband says, You know what? I think I'll have her for a second round around. And God says, No, matrimony is not to be taken casually. God said, You can't do that. You know, and that seems to be the main point of what we're reading right here. But of course, in reading this, there are other issues that are brought up in this passage. The first being the issue of requiring a certificate. You know, like I said earlier, it's not just words. It wasn't to be taken lightly. You know, divorce was never to be seen as a preferred or easy option. You know, Some people, man, when it comes to, you know, I'm just out of here. This is my way out. Um, and you're going to probably go out and end up in a relationship and the same thing is going to happen. And it's going to happen because you can't run from your problems. You know, um, Some people, that's the way that they settle their disagreements. But you know, it's interesting. The Hebrew word translated "divorce" has at its root the idea of hewing off, cutting apart. It's the amputation of that which is one flesh. Because when you got married, you became how many? One. And so when you get divorced, you're just like it's physically amputating that one. And so there's an element of that in the Hebrew here regarding that there's a certificate required, that it's not something you just casually do, lightly do. Um, But the second issue right here is the issue of uncleanness. Okay, So God here, according to the Mosaic law, uh, allowed divorce. But notice what it says. It says when a man takes a wife, marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And so the question of, I'm sure you know, what, what does uncleanness mean? What, she didn't take a bath? Or what, what uh, I divorced you, it's been three days, you haven't showered now? I mean, is that what uncleanness is? Um, and the rabbis, of course, you know, you, know, you know, a lot of times in life, we look at the Bible or we look at our relationship to God based on what? Based on my preferences. Well, this is the, the, the lens that I'm going to see this law in, right? And so some guys said, well, uncleanness, it can mean anything. Literally, some rabbis taught that if she burned your breakfast, you could divorce her. And you're like, honey, I asked these, you know, over easy, you know, and, and they're scrambled or whatever. I don't know, something crazy like that. Um, the rabbis would teach if she talked too loud, if she spun around in public, I mean, a lot of different things. But the interesting thing is the Hebrew word, it literally means um, it's like a nakedness. And so there's more to it definitely than that. You know, in looking at this right here, and we're going to see in Matthew chapter 19, um, we talk a little bit about divorce. We probably should stop and, and talk a little bit about this because maybe there's some of you here who really don't know what the Bible teaches about that. You know, Jesus taught about this in Matthew 19. And we should go over there uh, real quick. Because the, the leaders of the day, they brought this up to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 19 it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them. And the Pharisees also came to him because they wanted an answer, right? No, it's because they wanted to test him. And they said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, today, you can get a divorce for any reason, huh? In our culture. Irreconcilable differences. What is that? Greg Laurie said, I've been having irreconcilable differences for 30 years, man. (laughs) You know, what's that? Um, they came for any reason, right? And so he answered and said to them, Well, haven't you read? And a lot of times that's the problem. If I could just stop there for a moment. That's the problem. Why a lot of times we're doing the wrong thing. is because we have not read the Bible. That's why. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus really just, man, he wants to share with them the, um, the sacredness of holy matrimony. He wants them to see what happens when two get married that the two become one, that God joins them together. And so what he does is he goes past the Mosaic law and he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And he says that's really the the, the the authority when it comes to marriage. And again, he doesn't say, hey, where were you married? Were you married in a synagogue? Were you married in the Catholic church? Were you married at the city hall? That's not even an issue. If Once you're married, God joins you together, right? Right. And he really wants them to see um, just the sanctity of that because the bottom line is, back then, just like today, we are taking this way too lightly. You know, and I'll be honest with you, man, if I didn't have this conviction in my life, I'd probably be divorced. And you know, as Shelly and I, she'll tell you, we don't have a perfect marriage. We don't. We have our hard times. Most couples do. Most couples do. Some couples, are they get along really well, but most couples, they, they have some, some struggles, some big-time struggles. Now, am I, am I saying that that's a good thing? No. I'm just saying that that we're sinners. And if we did things according to the world, we would just go our own way. But the Bible, it gives us an answer. God says, no, you need to take this a lot more seriously. So what ends up happening They said to him, Okay, well, hold on a second, Jesus. Why then? This is what we read in our book in Deuteronomy. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And here's the authority right here in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And, and the Lord said that the only way you, know, you can get a divorce is, is when there is sexual adultery, when there is that immorality. But even then, you can try to work it out. You know, sometimes, though, the Lord knows that that individual will never change. That that has been a violation that has dealt the marriage a death blow. And God does give an individual in such cases the freedom to move on. It doesn't make them a second-class citizen in any way. But you see, that's what the Bible teaches. Only in the case of adultery, where that individual will not repent, and then over in First Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment. And that means that they just leave. They leave, not you. The non believer leaves. And they fall off the face of the earth, man. You see? And it's important for us to know what the Bible teaches. Now back in Deuteronomy, you know, in reading this right here, you know, you might think, Well, wait a minute, um Were the husbands the only one allowed to give a divorce or to get a divorce? And in Mark chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus said that wives also had that right as well. In Deuteronomy, he continues to talk about marriage. And I love the next verse, you guys. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, And when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year. And notice... And bring happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. Don't you wives just love that verse right there? <laughs> you know, and the interesting thing to me is this, man. That, um, you know, your husband comes home. And that's supposed to make you happy. Okay? Some husbands come home and, and the wives aren't happy, man. <laughs> the husband's supposed to come home. And I just love this right here. It's just to make his wife happy. That is an awesome verse for us guys as husbands, isn't it? I mean, and really, that really is the epitome of what a husband's called to do. A lot of husbands, man, unfortunately, we have this selfish tendency to live for ourselves, But that's not what we're called to do as husbands. If you got married, now you're called to do what? To meet her needs and to look out for her and to take care of her. Not yourself, you're like, "Well, hey, man, I you know, I pay the bills, bro, you know i she's got clothes, man, she's even styling, you know, and <laughs> you know what that that's not making her happy, you guys, you know that's not what it's about. It's more than that, huh? And I pray that we would catch the heart of this. William MacDonald said this gave him time to cultivate and strengthen the marriage bond and to start a new family. You know, he didn't have to go to war. He could spend that first year just, and that first year is very important. Of course, every year is important, but that first year of just bonding together, it's so beautiful. You know, David Guzik said this is an important job for every husband, even as before the Lord. We find our lives by losing them. So a husband will find the most happiness if he brings happiness to his wife. You guys know what a difference it makes to have a happy wife, huh? And what a difference it makes when she's not happy, huh? A happy wife is the foundation of the home. A bitter or contentious wife makes a miserable home, right? Right? And it's so true. We read Proverbs 27:15, A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Proverbs 21, 9. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21:19, Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. And you're like, well, my wife is contentious. Well, make her happy. You do the job, man. Don McClure said, a happy wife is a happy life. And I say amen to that. Verse 6, it says, No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. I mean, that pledge over those two stones that they would use to grind the grain. You don't want to take that from him. Um, Verse 7, If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and he shall put away the evil from you. Kidnapping is such a terrible crime. I think, it's, uh, I think it is a capital offense. God says so in his word. In verse 8, he says, Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you. Just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt? You know, and the Lord's just telling him, man, make sure that you obey the law. Make sure that you obey the Bible. Uh, when it comes to leprosy, we read the commands in detail, Leviticus 13 and 14, and how God wanted lepers examined and he wanted them quarantined because leprosy was such a dreadful disease. And so he says right here, you know, make sure that you're biblical and then in verse 9 it's kind of interesting he says remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt do you remember that and what had happened was Miriam she kind of led her brother Aaron um, in rebellion against Moses and the priesthood and God says listen I've given you the law and I've given you the priests as the authority make sure you submit to them and so we have to do things according to God's word What ended up happening was Miriam got leprosy. She got the leprosy. And so Moses prayed for her, and she was healed seven days later. But during that seven days, she was outside the camp. See, And so God says, you've got to remember these things. Do things according to God's word and according to God's spiritual structure as my people. Uh, Verse 10, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. You know, you want to maintain his dignity. You don't go into his house and, and get it. Let him bring it out. It says, And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. And so, when you're loaning somebody something, this is kind of like collateral. God said, if they need it to keep warm, you know, give it to them. Now, some aren't sure whether this happens, you know, after the debt is paid or, or during. But either way, I think there's still that principle of being a compassionate people. You know, really, that's at the heart of it. Um, Lady, it's been cold. So, how many of your houses are cold? That's out of curiosity. You know, it'd be tough. Just think if you didn't have a heater, or a blanket, or a jacket. Verse 14, it says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he crowd against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. You know, and you pay those guys. If they come in, they do the work, make sure you pay them. You know, I know we have a gardener and he comes every other week and every once in a while I'm tempted not to be there on payday, you know. And the Lord just convicts me. He says, no, you cannot do that. Um, Verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. And When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. You know, when it's so cool when we remember um, where we came from or if we even take into consideration where we would be right now if it weren't for the Lord. If it wasn't for the salvation that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and in looking at this right here, you guys, I just learned so much. You know, we end right there. And again, we see it throughout the Bible. And this has been hammered into my heart year after year about how God takes care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, you know, those who are struggling. I know this, man, that God has given us the command to take care of them. And the cool thing is this, you know, as you're going through and you know, you're getting your, your grapes or your grain or whatever, you leave those gleaning behind because you do it for the poor, right? But the cool thing is this that you don't just you don't go and give it to them necessarily. They have to come and get it, huh? And isn't that a good welfare system? Not just a handout. Hey, you, you want some food? I'll tell you what. Why don't you do a little work? They come and, and they work for it. And God maintains that dignity for them, also showing them an element of responsibility. And so I don't know about you, ma'am, but when I read God's Word, I'm so blessed with the practicality of it and the wisdom of it. I'm so blessed to see you guys here on a Thursday night. Hopefully you're here not because you have to be. Hopefully you're here because you want to draw near to God. You want to hear his word. You want to worship him. And you want to fellowship with one another. Afterwards, encouraging each other, praying for each other, growing as Christians in the Lord. You know, and taking this and, uh, and really asking God, you know, I don't want to just be a hearer, Lord. I want to be a doer of your word. It's kind of interesting. When John Newton was born again, he printed out verse 22 in large letters and he hung it over his mantelpiece where he would be constantly reminded of it. He said, "You know what? That's cool. That's for me." And he just he took the time, you know, he did it on he got on his computer real quick. No, I'm just joking. They didn't have computers and you know. Anyways, he, and he put it right there. That stuck out to him. How about for you? Does anything stick out for you? Maybe if there's something here, you're like, you know what? Ah, I need to make my wife happy, or you know what? I I need to do this, or whatever it is, you know. Um, You print it out. Put it over your mantelpiece. Because you want to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, Lord. Uh, Thank You so much, Father, even just in looking at Your wisdom, Your grace, Your love in our life, and how Jesus Christ, how Jesus, You have allowed us to come into the assembly. How Jesus, You took an illegitimate child like me And you gave me life. And you welcomed me in. How you take the curse and you turn it into a blessing, Lord. How you love us. How you love us. Even though we're not worthy. But you love us because of who you are, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, tonight that you would touch every heart here. That all the Christians, Lord God, would just... Be passionate and consumed with the kingdom, on fire, in love with one another. And if there's anyone here tonight who maybe has drifted away, who is not a Christian, that tonight, Lord God, tonight you would lead them to you, that they would come to you. And that tonight, Father, would be their night of salvation. And if you're here today, and just in case you don't know the Lord, maybe someone invited you or somehow you ended up in here, man. It's not a coincidence. It's because God loves you. And God wants to save you. One day you're going to stand before God. And you're going to give an account. And if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will perish. But the good news is that Jesus died for you. He loves you. He wants you. He invites you even tonight to be his child. And right where you're at, you can pray a prayer. You can tell God, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to trust in You as my Lord and Savior. And if you want to do that right where you're at right now, you just close your eyes and in your heart, you tell God, just pray this prayer. Say, Lord, I come to You tonight and I admit that I have sinned. Tonight I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Save me. Speak life over me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, you meant it. Then right now, man, it's so cool. There's a party going on in heaven. We'd love to talk to you, to pray with you, answer any questions that you might have. For the rest of us, let's all stand and we'll close in a song.